Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing our Through Nicaea series, and last time we talked about, uh, let's see, the Arian controversy, uh, Nicaea, and the aftermath. Uh, we condensed the aftermath, and now we're going to talk about Athanasius. Uh, we surveyed him in the survey, and so we're not going to retouch on things that have already been mentioned there. I've really tried not to repeat myself too much throughout these, but it's hard to remember what I've said um, as I've been typing up notes for patrons. I've been kind of saying the same thing several times, and so I, I'm not sure where I said what and to whom. Um, so, sorry about that. But let's jump right into it. We're going to do Athanasius and probably the Cappadocians, because... Uh, what we can. So let's jump right into it. Athanasius is a key figure in church history who has much debate around him because of his impact, whether or not uh, sometimes his impact is exaggerated, sometimes it's downplayed. Um, but regardless, he was a great work, um, great worker in terms of being an ambassador for orthodoxy. He has legends around him. He has amplifications. Um, but no matter how you slice the exaggerations, he was extremely impactful and crucial. And you read his works and you can tell why. Um, so since we discussed his background a little bit in our survey, we're just going to move straight to his theological contributions. Um, and like last time, I apologize if you can hear rain in the background, I have the metal roof and sometimes it's hard to avoid, um, it being noisy anyway. So Athanasius places an emphasis on the renewal of creation through the work of Christ. So his theological framework begins with creation as being a Trinitarian work uh, where you would have Christ or the Logos, the word, as the agent in creation and the father through the word orders all things and all things are moved by the word. Uh, it's very similar to what you find in Colossians and John 1. Uh, so the word reveals the father and as Christ is the image of God, man was created in the image of God. There ergo Christ. So in his work on the incarnation, very famous work, kind of classic. If you pick it up, it's a great read. Um, having the historical context helps a lot with it, so find one with an introduction. But regardless, in the incarnation, he describes that Jesus took on a real body, no different from ours, uh, and he gave it to death. He offered it to the Father so that the ruin of the human race might be undone, and corruption of mankind could be uh, come in corruption, and so that we could be freed from death, and we could be given immortality via being united to Jesus Christ. So the renewal of man is to be renewed in God's image, and that is to be conformed to Christ. Uh, you can see how the logic flows there with us being created in the image of Christ. Um so Athanasius' discussion does not merely stop at the Son taking on flesh at his nativity, um, but he discusses the importance of the Incarnation through his life and his resurrection. So whenever we read on the Incarnation, we're like, oh, this is going to be a nativity discussion. No, he's talking about the Incarnation throughout the entire life of Christ. So for Athanasius, Christ took on all aspects of human nature so that they could be sanctified. How can the human mind be sanctified if Christ didn't have a human mind, right? So you can kind of follow that logic down. Um, and so we have that uh, sanctification with the Christ taking on all aspects of human nature so that we could be renewed and have fellowship with God. And in Christ, humanity is given the grace of partaking in the divine nature. Um, and we talked about that before on the show, but it's based on 2 Peter 1.4, 
Uh, and this is called theosis or deification. Um, by being united and in communion with Jesus, we partake in the divine nature. And in this, Athanasius moves to the deity of Jesus uh, because Jesus is deity and must be deity for our salvation so that Jesus might deify us in himself. And by receiving the body of the word himself, we can be deified. By receiving the word himself, we can be deified. That's, that's the essence. Uh, so it's important to note here now that this theosis or deification is not becoming a god in the sense of uh, Mormonism or modern little god theology. Instead, it's having incorruptibility and immortality and life in the Trinity, um, like God, via our being united to Christ. And again, the theological grounds for that are Second Peter 1, 4. Um, so Athanasius, his soteriology, uh, moves from the necessity of Christ's humanity and deity. And in his work, he points out that the Word is united by nature to the Father, and whatever is in the Father is in the Son. The Son is not a creature, thus neither is the Son. Uh, the will of the Father and the Son are one because they are indivisible. If you have two wills, then you have two gods. So Athanasius here um, affirms the Nicene Creed from the essence of the Father, noting that it separates the Son from creatures of creation. And there is a formal term for this, and it's consubstantial, which means of the same essence. And later on, you'll see that discussion on the Holy Spirit and the Son being consubstantial. So, uh, the Son had no beginning, but was rather eternally begotten, eternal generation, with the Father's deity passing to the Son without flow or division, yet uh, not in subordination, but as an internal, natural sharing of existence. Uh, for Athanasius, eternal generation moves forward the reality that the Son has oneness with the Father, the Father is always the Father, and the Son is always the Son. And the Son is the proper offspring of the Father in his eternal divine nature. Athanasius says, quote, The divine generation must not be compared to the nature of men, nor the Son considered merely to be part of God, nor the generation to imply any passion whatsoever, end quote. And that would be passion meaning uh, like external means of generation, which we discussed briefly with Origen in a couple episodes back. Uh, further, the Father and the Son are eternal, proper um, distinctions that have no change. The Father has always been the Father, and the Son was always the Son. One could not be a Father unless the Son exists, and the Father did not change and become a Father, but was immutably the Father eternally. Pretty sound and straightforward logic there. So Athanasius further placed an emphasis on the Son being whole God, and so that's where we kind of get that emphasis of the Son being whole God. He is um, whole God in the sense that those who see the Son see the Father, and the Father's Godhead is in the Son and can be seen in the Son. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. There's this mutual indwelling. Um, really, that concept just kind of goes beyond me. Um, I, have, I have a really hard time with that particular concept, of the mutual indwelling of the three persons. Um, but regardless, uh, the Father is not... Um, or the Son is not part of the Father, but He is the whole image and the radius of the whole Father, a perfect expression of all that God is. Further, Athanasius presents the first extensive treatment on the Holy Spirit. And in this, he says that the Spirit um, is united to the Godhead of the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is in Christ as the Son is in the Father 
and the Spirit is the application of Christ, and um, Christ is the true Son. When we receive the Spirit, we are made sons, uh, and when the Spirit is given to us, God is in us. Further, the Spirit is the image of the Son, um, distinct from the creatures, and he belongs to the Godhead. Uh, the Spirit is not a second Son, however, uh, but is the same order in nature as the Son. For Athanasius, the Spirit proceeds from the Father eternally and is given through the Word, the Logos, in redemption. Uh, so in regards to Athanasius' um, importance for Nicaea, he presents a clear discussion on the difficulty of language. <laughs> he, he talks between uh, the usia or being in hypostasis persons, and he said that uh, he, he does stress that it's really what's intended behind the words that matters most and that there's a confusion of language. And he says, let's, you know, let's try to be more clear. Let's unite. Let's figure out what we're talking about. So he was a major point of unity uh, for Alexandria and Orthodox Christians who were saying the same thing with different terms, essentially. Um, so these two terms would be dealt with more um, by the Cappadocians who we'll talk about now. Um, the Cappadocians, um, they, they follow Athanasius in their defense uh, in a more precise articulation of Nicene Orthodoxy. And uh, they get their name from where they're from, Cappadocia. And there's Basil the Great, who lived between three, three, uh, 330 and 379, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, 335 and 394, and then Gregory of Nazianzus. I should probably look that up sometime and see how to pronounce it correctly. Uh, but he lived between 330 and 390. Now, um, Cappadocia was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Um, and the three would expound and clarify Nicene theology and allow for a more precise understanding of the Nicene Creed. Uh, it would be instrumental to the creed formed in 381. Um, we're going to talk about them very briefly here. Um, so beginning with Basil. Uh, he was actually the brother of Gregory of Nyssa, um, and he has a major contribution that is worthy to read called On the Holy Spirit. Um, what is it called? Um, Popular Patristics has a little paperback version of this. It's actually a great series. I think the printer is Eastern Orthodox, but they have a lot of great of these, um, a lot of great classic works like that. Um, so On the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's where I got um, On the Incarnation. Uh, it's a Greek and English edition, but they also have just the English edition. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Basil writes against the so-called spirit fighters. Uh, and the spirit fighters were individuals who taught the subordination of the Holy Spirit. And he writes in defense of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And it's actually pretty interesting because in the beginning of this work, he actually spends a good amount of time discussing how these individuals were using prepositions uh, and really just beating the drum on prepositions in order to teach um, that the Holy Spirit was not deity. And so he discusses prepositions and saying, you know, these guys try to use prepositions, but if you look at it holistically, it's ridiculous. And so he talks about how they'll utilize their various prepositions and he, um, how they try to undermine the Holy Spirit by these prepositions. But he just, he really does a fantastic job just refuting that. And it's, it's really interesting to see how, um, even back then, whenever it comes to these types of issues, little things like that, like in these couple of texts, this prepositions used, therefore, Heresy, and so it's just kind of interesting to see that, like, really, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, and so, the beginning of the work begins with that discussion on prepositions, uh, and then he distinguishes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He distinguishes the hypostasis, uh, which would, of course, be important as we talked about a number of times. 
Um, and then Basil argues that the Holy Spirit is of supreme nature, intelligent essence, power, infinite magnitude, unlimited, unmeasured by time or ages, perfecting all other things, lacking nothing, supplier of life, omnipresent, etc. It's honestly my longest highlight in his book is that section where he's talking about the Holy Spirit and it's um, uh, gracious chapter nine and I somewhere around 22, 23, and it's a long paragraph, and it's fantastic. Anyway, he goes on to stress that while there are three distinct persons, they are not numerical in sequence, um, where that would allow them to be subordinate or three gods. He states that the distinction in persons are recognized with um, the abidance to the divine monarchy. There's only one monarchy. There's only one object of worship, God. Uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son with oneness of being with the Father and Son. Actually, quite interesting is that there is a controversy about liturgy and how you would say um, that relationship with the Father through the Son with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. And those prepositions were really important for these guys. It's pretty fascinating, but it's a little bit off topic, I guess. Um, Gregory of Nyssa um, is Basil's brother. And he stresses the oneness of the Son and the Father. Now, what's interesting here is that Athanasius and Gregory here both note that it's better to speak of the Father as Father rather than ungenerate. Or, un, yeah, ungenerate, sorry. Um, lest there be some kind of opposition of the Father and the Son, like ungenerate versus generate. Uh, the title Son expresses the eternal identity of the Son in relation to the Father, and the Father expresses the eternal identity of the Father in relation to the Son. Which is quite interesting because if we start thinking about like we we call God, there's another discussion. I can't remember who it's by, um, a discussion by maybe Athanasius, but he's saying something like we shouldn't call God by His works. We shouldn't say Creator God or Omnipresent God, uh, things like that, because it makes God dependent upon His works for His identity. Whenever His works flow from His identity, which really, I mean, you could say that's semantics because. Um, I mean, God's works are amplified in Scripture, and he demonstrates himself by his works. But what's he demonstrating by his works? Well, himself, not his works, uh, in themselves, rather. Hopefully that made sense. Uh, it's a little bit of a sidebar. But with this um, calling the Father the unborn God, and the Son the born God, or the generate God, and the Father the ungenerate God, you'll actually see that language in translations and writings, um, like Ambrose he, he uses that a couple times, and so if you ever read that in an early church writing, that's what they're talking about. They're not saying that, you know, Jesus was literally born in that sense, um, in that the Father um, is unborn and therefore the Son is created, but they're talking about ungenerate and generate in terms of what we've been discussing here. So you have a little bit more historical context to navigate um, that type of writing. Um, anyway, so on eternal generation, Gregory notes that the divine nature is not divided, but that the Son is co-eternal with the Father, and the Son is all that the Father is, uh, besides not being the Father, right? Um, so Gregory furthers this distinction between usia and hypostasis. Uh, usia is noted as a general um, understanding, and hypostasis as the particulars, and so the three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are distinct but inseparable in equality and unity, God is one in usia, or essence, and three in hypostasis, or persons, divided without separation and united without confusion. 
Next, Gregory of Nazianzus uh, is known as the theologian. In fact, he's the only one who has that title other than I think it's John the Apostle in terms of church history. Uh, Despite not wanting to be, he was ordained the head of Constantinople, and his impact comes heavily from his five sermons preached at Constantinople called Theological Orations. Fantastic, worth reading. Um, And this, his influence would stretch far beyond 381 to Chalcedon. uh, And yeah, so anyway, the third and fourth theological orations are the ones that we're really interested in here if you're wanting to you know, pick it up and read in terms of the context of this particular discussion. Uh, Gregory notes that there is one monarchy with no severance of essence, although he stresses that the Son is generated from the Father and the Spirit is proceeding from the Father. Uh, The equality of the three persons is not undermining the monarchy. He discusses this distinction between uh, the generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit as being a mystery but that their differences are ultimately found in the properties of being begotten and proceeding uh, and their relations. Uh, their persons are preserved in one Godhead, uh, and basically they are Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship, and these relationships do not change or affect the identical usia or nature of God. It's a lot to process there, really, um, especially when we start talking about the properties of being generated or the properties of being um uh, proceeding from the Father. Um, but the general argument is that there's one monarchy with distinctions. Uh, they are on con substantial with the um, with each other, mutually indwelling. Uh, in relationship, there's no change of the, uh, the divine nature. There's no effect of the divine nature. They are Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. And that's that. Um, his stresses on the unity and diversity um, of the Godhead. So while there is much that can be said here, we're going to discuss Constantinople of 381 and the so-called Nicene Creed that we know of typically um, without retouching on the historical survey. So again, historical survey, go back and touch on that. So first it's helpful to speak of the reality that the Creed of 325 that we've called N and 381 called C uh, differ not only in that 381 has been expanded and updated, but it also has omissions and additions that are absent from 325, which we really don't hear about too much. Um, We usually just think of it as, Oh, it was was expanded and it was revised a little bit. Uh, But when we compare the two creeds, we can immediately see uh, the significant differences found on the subject of the Holy spirit. I mean, you look at the clauses, it's obvious, right? You got one line, Uh, And we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then you have the paragraph. Uh, So many scholars tend to describe the Creed of 381 as an entirely new document rather than a mere revision, uh, regardless of the fact that the authors of the Creed uh, didn't see anything as being new in the Creed because they're still carrying on the faith. But whenever we're talking about historical documentations, they believe that the one 381 was a new document altogether that was likely used in liturgies before baptism, etc. Um, we aren't going to discuss all of that, um, and we aren't going to discuss all the theology of the creed because we're going to be breaking down the entire creed line by line uh, with historical context, etc. as we get to it, um, but we're going to hit on some major points So here. 
Um, the additions, we're going to talk about additions first. So 381 adds a number of phrases and words. The most significant consists of the phrase, by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and there will be no end to his kingdom, end quote. Um, and the article on the Holy Spirit, which we've already talked about. Now, the omissions from 325 are worth noting as well. Uh, 381 omits from the usia of the Father um, when speaking of Jesus. Uh, there's debates about why this omission occurred. Robert Leatham says uh, the most reasonable conjecture for this omission is that C, that is 381, may have originated as a formula for liturgical purposes. And so uh, the rhythmic flow um, could have been disturbed by um, this phrase, and so it was not necessary to repeat it um, because it has this rhythmic flow whenever you read it. Um, so theologically, uh, the creed completes the necessary articulation of the Holy Spirit that was lacking from 325, uh, including a call to worship the Holy Spirit together with the Father and the Son. Um, also, in the creed, the term Lord is applied to the Spirit, which is typically reserved for Yahweh and Jesus. Um, and additionally, the creed states that the Father is the source of the Son and the Spirit, and the creed states that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, from the usia, or nature, of the Father, and places him outside of those things made by the Son, uh, which, of course, contradicted the teachings of the Macedonians or the spirit fighters who claimed that the Spirit was created by the Son. So it tightened up the language. It expanded the section on the Holy Spirit. By this time, the distinction between usia and hypostasis were hammered out and definitive, and it makes for a very peaceful discussion until a controversy will later arise that we're not going to get too much into. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a doozy. I don't know if I use that term correctly ever, but it's, it's a big one. And this big controversy can be summarized in one word called the filioque. So what is the controversy? Well, um, in the creed, this clause, the, the filioque clause, um, would become a tipping point and the Great Schism of 1054, if you don't know, uh, the Schism of 1054 is when the church officially divided from um, into the Western and Eastern Church. as the big schism, the Great Schism, whatever you want to call it. Now, it obviously has importance because of this reality, and that's not the only thing that came into play. There's a lot of different um, factors. History can rarely ever be boiled down to one point like that. But it was a tipping point. Um, and what lied behind it was a tipping point politically, theologically, etc. So what is the filioque? Well, the original creed of 381 says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. In fact, if you look at um, the notebook, if you picked up one of the Christ the Cure notebooks on uh, the creed, and you read it, you see that in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. That's what it says. But if you look it up on a Catholic or Protestant website, you will read, um, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Um, so that inclusion, and the Son, is the filioque. Um, that addition, that inclusion, would be a major point of contention on theological grounds, um, even though the, the waters become muddy, mainly because of language, from my observations. Um, so the original creed of Constantinople in 381 
just said that the Father or the Spirit proceeds from the Father, while in the Western Church, you have this addition of and the Son. Uh, the inclusion in, occurred in Spain sometime uh, because of the rise of Arianism, and it would be adopted by local councils uh, and by the French Church in the 8th century, and eventually it'd become inserted into the Creed officially by the Roman Church in 1014. It would be considered dogma by the Western Church by 1274. And like I already previously mentioned, the Philoque was not the sole reason for the Great Schism. Uh, there were theological debates, there were tensions in ecclesiology, uh, namely the the Bishop of Rome and, and um, basically asserted himself in a way that he wasn't supposed to. And so for the Eastern Church, that was a big no-no to have that inserted phrase into an ecumenical creed with no ecumenical council. Um, and for the East, this was a theological error, but also an overextension of the Bishop of Rome's power and that he modified an ecumenical creed by Rome's own authority, um, which was not how the Bishop of Rome's authority was expressed or viewed historically, um, but that's a different discussion for a different day. So disappointing as it may be, I, I want to study the clause for myself later on, um, and so we're not really advancing on the topic. I may discuss it whenever we get to it in the study of the creed, um, but if you notice that I did not include it on uh, my poster or on my book, and the reason is simply because we're talking about the creed as it was known in 381. We're not going past 381, and so that's that. Um, and there are Protestants who argue for the exclusion of the line. There are those who argue for the inclusion of the line. Um, so there's debates from every angle on whether or not it should be included. But with all that said, mine was not a theological reason, but a historical reason. I figured we'd just talk about it as the Creed of 381. And um, so that's that. So we will use the Creed and its form for 381. And I think we are done with historical background. And that means that we will begin going through the Creed in our next episode. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.